If you're eating shitty, excuse my French, and you add a protein supplement into it, you're supplementing a bad diet. Welcome to the All In Podcast. This is your host, Natalie Allport, and today on the podcast, we have Dr. Ford Dyke, the Director of Mindfulness-Based Performance and Health Optimization at Auburn University, a former Team USA handball athlete, and a performance coach and wellness consultant. He has a PhD in kinesiology and a master's in exercise science, and we talk about thinking before action. We talk about his background, how he came to do what he does. We talk about the mind-body connection and all these really cool and unique tools that they use in his program. We also talk about mindfulness, the foundation and pillars of health, and some tips for improving each of these areas in your life. So without further ado, let's go all in. Welcome to the All In Podcast, Ford. How's it going? It's doing very well, Natalie. I appreciate you having me today. Yeah, I'm stoked to have you on just based on your background and all the different topics that you are an expert on. I mean, it, it fits perfectly. I want to start off with like, you have a quote on your website. I think it's also on your LinkedIn and it says, cognition precedes action, think responsibly. What mm. does that mean to you? I'd love for you to like dive into that concept. Uh, that's a good one. I don't think anyone's ever really asked me about that. Um, on a live show. So I appreciate you pulling that apart and bringing it up. It starts with the notion that as humans, we all have a brain and our brain is one of our, you know, clearly primary organs that we use every day, all day long, whether we're aware of it or not. And that's just the organ. That's the, the CPU of the, of the processor, so to speak. It's the mind that is the brain in action. And so when we think about our actions, our behavioral outputs, our performance, et cetera, it all starts by way of a thought. The synapse fires, the thought comes, subconscious or conscious, a behavioral output occurs. So something as habitual as just reaching down to retie your shoelace or brush your teeth or wake up in the morning and put deodorant on, these are very habitual behaviors that we have, but we learn them and they still take thoughts for those behaviors to happen. But that's just a really simple form of how our cognition precedes our action. So anything we do as humans, we first have a thought. And that's the clause after the comma, think responsibly. So if we know that our cognition precedes our actions, and you hear a lot, drink responsibly. That's kind of how I started thinking about, well, that's always an interesting comment that I hear, drink responsibly. What about think responsibly? Because if we become more responsible thinkers, then our actions will ensue and you'll see better results from that. Hmm. I love that analogy because it's true. Like, for example, drink responsibly as simple a concept as it is, that's an action that we're taking. But if we think responsibly and think, you know, well, what are the value systems that I want to build? What what is the, like, what is the action I want to take? I want to think about, you know, making good decisions of not having that drink and drinking and driving or whatever to, to relate back to your analogy. So totally makes sense. Love it. Love that you have that, you know, just a quote conversation starter as your LinkedIn top of the website. Thank it's you. a perfect segue into what I want to ask you next, which is that like you have a master's in exercise science, you have a PhD in, in kin. And I think when people think about these things, they think about like strength and conditioning purely, <laughs> but then you're on like the human optimization or health optimization and mindfulness side of things, which I think is so interesting. So could mm. you like go back to the beginning, maybe even like the sports you did growing up and walk me through, like what led you to this path to doing what you do now? It's a loaded question. Um, I'll answer it first by saying that in our conversation before we recorded, I was talking about that 10 year window and it's 2022. And in 2012 is when I came to Auburn University for that master's degree that you referenced in exercise science. But before that, it was that second chapter of life because that's kind of how I start to see our life unfold, the human experience itself in these 10 year blocks. So from zero to 10, you're a sponge, you're downloading information. You're not necessarily consciously aware of it yet. 10 to 20, things start to change. 20 to 30, again, there's another shift and so on and so on. 
to think that you only have about 10 of those chapters, it really starts to change the way you see the world, at least for me. Growing up in Jupiter Beach, Florida, and I've said this on previous episodes, it afforded the opportunity to think and to think responsibly, going back to that clause, meaning when you don't have shoes on and your shirt's off and you're at the beach for hours and hours and hours, and you're just kind of looking out on that horizon, there's you're free. There's no obstructions. There's no real rules or, you know, people telling you what to do. You can kind of just be human. And with that, it led me into studying psychology at the University of North Florida as an undergraduate. And I kind of wanted to figure out what was going on above the neck, what's going on between the ears. What is this organ all about? What is the mind all about? And once I did that, I realized, okay, well, now I know about what's going on above the shoulders. Well, what's going on below the shoulders? So I come to Auburn to study exercise science and that was a shift in field. Although those two fields are pretty interdependent, it's the human body, it's the human mind. You can't really separate these things. So I'm working through the master's program and I'm realizing now I'm learning about the body. Well, what about the connection between these two pieces? The mind affects the body and the body affects the mind. So I studied psychophysiology which is that body-mind, mind-body connection and looking at it at an objective level. So using functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI, electroencephalography or EEG, skin conductance, heart rate variability, all the tools that we had in the lab. And while I'm going through my PhD to answer your question about mindfulness and how I started to get into this world of human performance optimization, I had a mentor here who's an Olympian, 1984, at the time, she was teaching a mindfulness course in our department. And long story short, I kind of just got, you know, shifted over to this class. And I realized a lot of these tools and these techniques I was, I was doing back on that beach in Jupiter, Florida, without even really knowing I was doing it. Whether it was positive self-talk or negative self-talk, or whether it was growth mindset versus fixed mindset, or whether it was just being, literally just sitting and focusing on the breath and not ignoring other things, just noticing and observing and trying to describe it without reactivity or without judgment. And so it wasn't really until my dissertation year where I started to understand the science behind things that I, be that I believe were kind of just a part of me naturally, so to speak. And once I got into professorship is really when I decided, okay, I have the stage, I have the microphone, I have the speakers. Now it's time to really push this information out to the world and bring that back full circle to where I started in Jupiter Beach. Super cool. I love, I love a good full circle story. So that's awesome. Um, and cool how you can relate back and see that there is these times where you were just naturally doing that. And I think that's the cool thing about like mindfulness and presence is that it's funny how as adults, we are trying to come back to that. But yet as kids, it's like that was kind of our basic state, right? Being observant, being curious, just noticing things, sitting in silence and, and doing these types of things. But all of a sudden the world gets busy. We have to pay taxes and things get crazy. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, Timely we're like, yeah, now we call it self-care. And it's like, this was just natural, right. natural yep. way of being originally. Um, well, one thing that you mentioned that was really cool was, yeah, how you studied that mind body connection. And that's something I find super fascinating, especially being able to, because I, especially we talk about mindset a lot. And I think sometimes people, they find it hard to, I guess, conceptualize it and like see the evidence other than just like, oh, it worked for me or it didn't work for me or whatever that is. Um, so could you tell me like, what are some of the coolest findings you you saw with like seeing HRV and seeing, you know, skin temperatures and the MRIs and all these types of things? What are like some really cool findings that you thought were interesting during that mm -hmm. time? Yeah, the caveat before I share any of those findings in the laboratory spaces is that I always tell my students, here's the data. Here's what the research is suggesting, but here are some tools and techniques based on the research that you should go try out and pay attention to how it makes you feel mm. because the research is a grand average. And we know that you, Natalie, you're not a grand average. You're an N of one. Me, I'm not a grand average. I'm an N of one. Every single person on the planet, they're not averages. They're, they're one. 
And so looking at it from those different levels, you start to change the way the students understand the data. While the data is very important and it drives more scientific inquiry, it's not dogma. It's not the truth, right? Because there's always holes in research. There's always holes in data sets. There's always bias in principal investigators. So there's a whole thing that you got to kind of start to think about when it comes to the result or the finding or like a Time Magazine, not to knock Time Magazine, but just as an example, science proves, they like to throw that word around. And I always kind of, ooh, because it's not proving anything. It's suggesting based off of a data set, based off of a participation pool, based off of a principal investigator, based off of an academic grant, based off, and it just keeps going. So I say all that to say, as a student, what I found most fascinating was the fMRI center. We have a seven Tesla here at Auburn University, one of the strongest MRI machines in the country. And the amount of clarity that you can get from those images, and they have diffusion tensor imaging, DTI, where you're looking at the structure of the brain from a neuronal standpoint and how that neuronal cavity is functioning. I mean, you gotta understand, I'm a little puppy coming in from psychology into kinesiology, I'm seeing that with that resolution and there's a human laying in there in a, in a little donut shaped t- uh, tube and we're presenting stimuli to them and I'm watching their brain respond to this mm. live. I mean, that, that just completely took my understanding of the brain into the end of the mind to a whole nother level. In fact, it made me realize I don't know anything. <laughs> you know, it's like when you see that happening and you know that every participant is their own participant, it just kind of makes you think a little bit differently about how powerful our brains are. And yet we don't often tap into it. And that was the idea behind how do I connect what's going on in a laboratory setting with a practice like mindfulness to really offer content and products essentially that are applicable and that are going to make a bigger impact versus just a data set telling us this is proof. Mm, right. And what, what are some of the coolest things or like things that you guys were studying with the, with that technology um, or some of the coolest findings that came from it? So fMRI is interesting. It costs $500 an hour to run the machine. Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. So not uh, it's not used as much as it could be or should be just because of the sheer price point it, it, it takes to, to run it. The amount of people you have to have in the room, it's a whole control center. So I'll kind of move away from fMRI for a little bit and I'll go to the electroencephalography, EEG. For your listeners, that's the little swim cap with all the wires coming out of it. A lot of people think it's like a sleep study, but you can use it for other metrics as well. And my advisor, Dr. Matthew Miller here at Auburn, he invented essentially the cognitive workload metric. So he was able in his dissertation at Maryland to measure the way in which the brain is working under certain conditions and how much your brain is working in those conditions. So we can measure you right now, Natalie, listening as the host of this conversation, and we would have a metric versus if you were on a show as a guest and I was the host, which that's just a, that's a forecast for what's about to happen on my show when you come on, you would have a different metric because now you're the guest. So your brain's gonna process auditory information differently, visual information differently, kinesthetic information differently. So you're essentially able to measure the brain objectively as opposed to asking the participant, how hard was that for you? On a scale of one to five, now that's subjective. So it's important to have that, but you cross check it with the objective data. So in our labs, we were able to measure cognitive workload studies. He eventually took that metric and took it over to one of our smaller airports here that trains some of our Delta pilots. We're very close to Atlanta, Georgia, which is the Delta hub. And they use that with their pilots. So they'd have flight simulators, have the EG cap on, running the cognitive workload metric. And all of a sudden you would purposefully put on an engine light for pilot A. And pilot A was able to process that information, get the aircraft back to status quo, everything was good. Same scenario, different pilot, pilot B, it's a whole different situation. The engine light comes on before you know it, the plane, obviously it's a you know, simulator, the plane starts to, to go down. So the question is, those are still pilots in training and they've received the same education and same training. Maybe something neuronally is different. 
and the way their brain is structured and wired. So from there, that's when you send them back to the fMRI center to see what's happening. And you can do simultaneous fMRI EEG studies. But again, it's very cost prohibitive. So you kind of got to find your way in the research world and start to think about questions that make the most sense and are going to have the biggest impact. Mm, so like thinking about the sports space and like how maybe in the future that could be used. I mean, obviously it's super expensive, but um, like I could see, you know, an athlete, they're trying to learn a certain skill movement and it's just not clicking. And like maybe being able to, to see why is it not clicking in some people versus others versus just giving everyone the same cue, the same training, because everyone, like you said, is like an N equals one, like everyone is different. Mm -hmm. And so what might work for you might not work for me. It might take me like, let's say with snowboarding, like there was my friend who I trained with, she landed one of the first women to ever land a triple cork yesterday, uh, on her snowboard. Like at one point we were at the same level. Right. And wow. like. Um, obviously I don't compete anymore, but like, just to think of like how fast, you know, she's progressing and learning those tricks. And then there's other people who take years to learn just one little step up trick and they'll never get to that level. And so it would be interesting to see, like, how could you speed up that process in certain, in certain people versus others and like figure out that. But I think, I, I don't know, it, what would you say? Would you say we're probably a long way off because of the cost and the, to be able to do that individually to people? Well, not necessarily. And I'm glad you brought up that example because another study we had in our lab, this was probably 2000 and gosh, 14, 15, something like that. In my doctoral program, we were taking that same metric. And instead of having people look at images or sounds or what have you, as far as the stimuli on the computer is concerned, we physically stood them up and they were putting a golf ball. Now that was just a motoric, um, piece to it. I mean, it wasn't like we were studying golfers. In fact, we were studying novices. And the reason we were studying novices is because there's a well-established data set on experts. And we know that certain areas of the brain, as an example, when Tiger Woods or Jack Nicholson steps up or Jason Duffner, when they step up to the putting green, their self-talk region in the brain isn't really online. They're experts. They've moved well past the self-talk phase of learning skill acquisition. Whereas a novice, you need self-talk. You need to be telling yourself what's your mechanical position, shoulders down, head straight, hips squared, knees slightly flexed, follow through. But as an expert, that's so automated that if you do start to think about that, you'll choke under pressure. You'll break down previously automated biomechanics and that affects therefore the performance. So that kind of comes back to cognition precedes action think responsibly. So as a novice, you should be thinking about this entire process. But as you move up through your acquisition phases and like your friends getting better and better and better, her self-talk would start to come down and her visual spatial region of the brain starts to come more online like an expert. So they're being able to survey the situation, whatever the information is in the environment, their brain's processing that to a much faster and a much more efficient rate as opposed to the self-talk. Interesting. Oh, that's that, that kind of stuff is so fascinating to me. So I'm glad we're diving into this, uh, this wormhole. I'm also curious because before we get like right into mindfulness, do you find like with athletes you work with and at the school, your background, um, of like exercise science and kin helps with the mindfulness side, because I can find that sometimes you bring up meditation or mindfulness to athletes and they're like, mm -hmm. you're talking woo woo. I think most people get it now. <laughs> like, you know, I think that we're seeing the benefits. We're seeing that shift in the conversation. But for some people, it's still like, what are you talking about? You know, I just right. need to focus on the physical side of things. So do you find that having that that background gives a little credibility and people listen to you more when you do speak to, to that? I think so, Natalie. But I really think if you take a step back and instead of just looking at an athlete, I try to look at humans as performers. And that was the reason why I built the platform that I built was after I was doing more and more of these presentations, especially through grad school, but into professorship, I realized it didn't really matter who was in front of me, whether it was a special forces Marine cadre, or you have a team or you've got, you know, physicians or attorneys or people, K-12 little kids. I just started thinking more from that 30,000 foot view or even into that stratosphere, like who are we as organisms and what do we do? Well, we think, and we know that our thoughts 
dictate our behaviors, dictate our actions. So I started thinking more broadly about how does our thought dictate our action? Well, our thought is something that we have to be aware of. So how do you become aware of your own thought? And that's kind of where you start to get people to realize more often than not, as humans, we're aware of our thoughts, whether we know it or not. We have that full control. It's just some of us kind of take it for granted or just disregard it all alone. So mindfulness is a practice. It's an innate human feature and aspect of us as humans because of the way our brain is set up. So going back to those fMRI studies and those EEG studies, structurally, we all have frontal lobes. You have a frontal lobe. I have a frontal lobe. Every human has a frontal lobe. It's what makes us human. It separates us from our counterparts. And more specifically, we have a prefrontal cortex. And that's a highly specialized, very new region of the cortex. And in that region, you can plan, you can problem solve, you can reflect, you can judge, you can make decisions. That's what separates us from other creatures on earth, as far as we know. The interesting thing is we're the ones studying it. So that's kind of a whole nother point. But the notion of it's an innate human feature, it's also a practice. So we can dial it in just like anything else. We have musculature. We can strengthen our muscles by way of repetition. Well, we have thoughts. We can strengthen our thoughts by way of repetition. So if you have a negative thought that comes across the synapse and you look at it and you attach meaning to it and start to doubt it or put pressure on it, now it builds momentum. And the research is suggesting now in as little as 17 to like 20 seconds, another thought like that will join it. Mm. And before you know it, you're in this vortex and it's hard to slow the momentum down. It's like a speeding train. So mindfulness, the practice of it is the idea of stepping back, pausing, looking at that thought, that thought seed, and just asking, where did that come from? Not why, not how, not when, just wonder where that came from. And as it passes by, you can either let it go or you can dive deeper into it if you want. And that's the practice is being observant, being able to describe what's happening here, being present, which is very difficult for people, being non-judgmental and, and non-reactive. Those are the five facets of mindfulness. It's a daily practice. It's not a 30-day app that you download. It's not a quick fix. You can't just do it when you feel like, you know, it's convenient for you or convenient for others. You have to do it every single day. And that's because we think every single day. Mm, right. I, I love that. And I used to have, um, like my mom put on the fridge, something about, you know, your thoughts become your actions, your actions become, you know, your habits, your habits become your character, so on. And yep. I remember always just seeing that like every day throughout my childhood and thinking about that and like, you know, what are those thoughts that I'm having and like breaking it down. And I think she didn't, you know, she, I don't think she even talked about that thing. It was just a quote she liked and put on the fridge, but you know, it mattered. And I think now learning about mindfulness, I'm like putting it back similar to you when you learned about mindfulness and realized, Oh, like that's what I was doing back then. It just, it's so important. And I love that you said that mindfulness isn't, you know, just getting rid of the, the negative thought and like, you know, shutting it out. It's, where did that come from? What are some tools people can do to, to start? Like if they're struggling maybe with anxiety um, as an athlete or a high performer or what, whatever, just as a human, um, what are some ways that people can start to be more mindful and start to build these practices so that it does become more habitual? Mm -hmm. I think perspective is everything. You know, I think a lot of the times because of the way in which the media starts to shape reality you know, people jump on board with when you retire as an athlete, you're going to be depressed. You're going to be stressed. You're going to be lost. You're not going to know where you are with your identity. And you hear that storyline, that narrative over and over and over again. And for a lot of athletes that rings true, but my question is always chicken or the egg. I mean, did they feel that way because that's what they were already setting themselves up and anticipating 
Or is it that they actually felt that way and they assign some commonality with other athletes? So the reason I say that is I don't think the media does a good enough job of sharing the other side of the coin, the athletes that have taken a lot of time to be deliberate in their transition and it with their identity and have released those chapters and have moved into different spaces and understanding that the chapter has served itself, you know, it's, it's done. You turn the page and now you got a whole blank slate to write an entirely new chapter. So what are practices first and foremost, it's all perspective, you know, and there's lessons in everything. There's messages in everything, but that takes awareness. It takes courage. It takes discipline. It takes the ability to say, I am human. And because of that, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect, but that's what makes us so perfect. It's the perfectly imperfect notion of this whole experience and everyone's on their own journey. But from the micro level, the individual level, it affects that meso level, that group level. So I'm on my team with my coaches and my staff and the and then it goes into the macro level of, okay, the program and how the program fits in the conference and how the conference fits in the region, how the region fits in the nation, how the nation fits in the world. It's a circle. What I do affects you. What you do affects me, whether we know it or not. That's the human experience. There's 8 billion of us here. So to think that we're not a globally conscious, interdependent, interconnected society, we're doing ourselves a disservice. And I think if anything has taught us that, it's the last 24 months. Mm, right. Yeah. I, I find, especially like going back to what you said about the athlete transition, I found just from the athletes I've talked to and, and what I, what I've seen, it's oftentimes those athletes who've had the long, long career at the, like, let's say at the pro level. So they've been there. They seem to be the ones who do seem to handle that transition a little bit more because they're not in that race of trying to get to that, the top and then all of a sudden an ending. So for example, like, uh, I guess an athlete like myself, like I was trying to pursue that Olympic dream. I was still young when I, when I came off of it. So I didn't, my whole mindset was like, my whole focus has to be getting to the top. I can't focus on anything else, right? That like laser focus versus you see an athlete who's, they made it. They've gone through that while they're still competing at the top level. They've had then their 10 year career where they're, they've gone through that um, while they're still playing to the point where then when that transition happens, they've had that time of like kind of being a little bit more relaxed with where they're at settling into being at that top level and having been there for a while versus yeah, that quick, that quick come up and you're still on that, that rise up and trying to prove yourself. And like, you hear a lot of, even those top athletes who talk about that struggle of that time, but then when they do walk away, it's 10 years after that, not in the middle of that process. Mm -hmm. What, what are your thoughts on, you know, how athletes perhaps while they're on that come up while they're, you know, blinders on focus, what, what can they do to kind of cultivate mm -hmm. that whole human experience and become a more well-rounded human so that they can handle when failure happens, when the transition happens. Oh, it's a brilliant question. And I think the key word there is transition. It's understanding that as humans, we're constantly transitioning every single day. We're constantly unfolding. We're becoming every single day. And the question of what can they do while they're transitioning towards retirement or towards the next level, towards the next accolade, paycheck, gear, whatever it is, trophy. Well, it's as simple as when you wake up in the morning, that's a transition. That's the freshest part of an athlete's day. Ideally, they've slept eight to nine, sometimes 10 hours. So their body's completely restored along with their minds and their brains. And so the first thought that comes to their mind that day, that's gonna shape the rest of the day, whether they know it or not. It's like setting that GPS when you're going on a trip. And as long as you set the GPS to the correct point of interest, if you get off track a little bit, the GPS system through triangulation redirects you and puts you back on the right track. Well, we have our own triangulation systems and that's what the frontal lobe is all about. Having the awareness of the moment, the space and time and knowing that we are in full control. So once that person rises in the morning, just stop for a second. Try not to hit the snooze button. Try not to jump on the social media platforms. Try not to react to life. 
Instead, use that first five minute, three minute, two minute, heck, 60 seconds as your time to set your GPS for not only the rest of the day, but maybe the rest of the week, the rest of the month. Start to set intentions and aspire for the rest of the year or several years or maybe the rest of your career, depending on where you are in your career itself. It's just a way to look at it a little differently. It's, it's not, in my mind, it's not rocket science. It's a very applicable way and a very tangible and practical way to go about these transitions. Instead of waiting for the gauntlet to land, do it more in a segmented and pragmatic approach day to day, day to day, day to day. We got about 1,440 minutes every day. Can you take two of those, five of those, 10 of those just for yourself to set that intention and to see how that plays out into your career? Amazing. And would you say there's like tools like meditation or other breath work practices that you would recommend for people to help them be more mindful and make, you know, use of that time? That's such an interesting question you bring up with meditation and different practices that they could start to apply. I was just speaking to someone the other day about, you know, why is it so difficult for especially North Americans to stop? And if you think about, as I mentioned earlier, the last 24 months to timestamp our episode on April 7th, 2022, we're still in the midst of a pandemic, whether we know it or not. Viruses don't just disappear, <laughs> but perception is reality. And humans have kind of made that virus disappear, so to speak, because I think in North America, we're so addicted to the hamster wheel, the nonstop lifestyle of go, 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 go. Don't worry about anything else. Your health and your well-being, it's okay. You'll be fine. Before you know it, you're sick. You made yourself ill because you've only focused on your performance. You've only focused on your bank account, how many cars are in the driveway, how many kids are at the dinner table, how many whatever, versus knowing that this organism thrives when it's in balance, when it finds equilibrium and equanimity. That's when our productivity, that's when our vitality, that's when we rise, that's when we optimize, is making sure that system is in balance. You can't expect to just go, 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 go for five, six, seven of those chapters, those 10 year blocks, and not think that your body's not gonna suffer. I mean, that's, that's pretty simple information, but we've gotten really far away from that. So I say all that because I think it's too much of a jump for North Americans to just start sitting down and meditating. It's too mm -hmm. much. It's way too drastic of a measure. And I'm just now understanding this as a mindfulness practitioner because I can go and I can lead a workshop for four hours and we can work through different content pieces and theories and practicalities and applications. And by the end, people are like, wow, my life's been changed. And I say, okay, well, contact me in 14 days and we'll see where you're at. And I'll see him 14, 21 days later. Oh, well, you know, I, I got busy and the kids and the house and the mortgage. And that. So we're so used to that nonstop hyperspeed, that stopping, literally and physically stopping and focusing on our breath. It's like too much for us. In the Eastern part of the world, it's not because culturally it's been around for a lot longer than it has in the Western part of the world. So I made it my mission to figure out what is something that we can start to think about that's more practical for the West side of the world. I don't think it's even a five minute session on calm or a five minute session on headspace. And by no means do I am in favor or not in favor of those platforms. I don't work for them. I think there's something else out there that we can be thinking about. I don't want to share it just yet. I'm still working on it, but I think it's something to close the gap, close the gap between the hyperspeed, the nonstop, the rat race and sitting down, paying attention to your breath for 10 minutes, no distractions, breathing, heart rate regulation. It, it's still too big of a gap. So I'm trying to go like this at least in the Western world, to come up with something for people that they can use every single day to make their lives better. 
Right. Well, it's it's like I've heard this concept spoken about a lot lately, especially as we're talking about, you know, health of our minds and bodies. And it's that we we know what's good for us. Like we have, mm. you know, some scientific uh, research on meditation that for a lot of people, it, it can be beneficial and it can and help. And there's there's different things, you know, um, eating whole foods, for example, or moving your body, you know, mm. once a day or walking or whatever it is. Um, we know what's good for us, but yet we, we don't do it. And I think, you know, there can be the perfect, I mean, nutrition is different for everybody. I believe exercise can, is different for everybody. What's going to work for you may not work for the other person, but what, what is going to work best for you is what you can do every day. And like you said, that example is you can show people these tools, but then 14 days later, it just doesn't integrate into their life. They're, they're just, things aren't working. They're, they're so busy. They're in the same environments. Um, They just got overwhelmed. And so I like what you're saying about trying to find something that just, you know, bridges that gap, because if we can get more people doing something, even though maybe doing something more, sure, that's going to be great, but we can't get enough people doing that. Like Mm -hmm. we still have a lot of these issues, even though we know people need to eat, you know, maybe a little bit better or exercise more to, to help with some of these health issues, but it's getting people to do it. That's, that's a difficult part. So it's not the failure of, you know, what we're doing, like saying, okay, well then, you know, meditation or saying that, okay, people are bad. They just need to meditate. They just need to do this. Well, no, we're all humans. Right. And we built this world where everything is so overwhelming. This is scenario. We have to find a solution that works. So I, I appreciate that you're trying to find something that, that fits in because I know a lot of people do say, I can't fit meditation. And then they feel shame about it because Mm -hmm. they're like, Oh, I'm so busy, but I got told that I have to do it. And then I didn't stick to it. And it's like, the world isn't, we've designed the world in a way that makes it really difficult to do these things that we know are good for us. Right. And I think you said it perfectly about, you know, we are human and that's my messaging right now is be human. If we know we're human, then be human. And that's what I mean by just be. How often do we just be? It's Mm. not very often. We thought we were learning it, in this span of lockdown, a span of isolation, this span of transition. And yet once the lock was taken off the door, back to it, fire hydrant, full speed ahead. And that's where I realized we got too big of a gap, at least in the Western world. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a tall order. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, ignorant to that, but I've kind of put it on myself, you know, as a human performance optimization specialist to share this knowledge and share this experience with people that are interested in it. But I always tell audiences, it's it's not for everyone. HPO is not for everyone. It's not. Because if it was, we would all be optimized. We would all be efficient. This whole system of the world, which is the planet in action, it would be different. And it's not. And it's not for... I don't know what reason. So even though a lot of people are interested in human performance optimization, you still have to look at it as it's not for everyone. Hmm. And that's kind of the piece that I've been challenged with. And I put that challenge on myself is I know it's not for everyone, but how can I make it for as many people as possible? Right. Right. Rather than just saying like, okay, this is just exclusive. It's this few people, but how can you make something that's a little bit more accessible to everyone? I, I appreciate that, uh, that mission for sure. I want to uh, jump into, you have, I think it was probably on the Auburn website that I saw it, these five pillars of health. Could you walk through what those five pillars are? And maybe like, let's say like the top tip for improving each, like for example, if a pillar is sleep, like what's, what's the top tip for each of those, those categories? Mm. Yeah. So the Auburn platform is mindfulness-based performance and health optimization. I've been working on that now for almost 10 years. I started in about 13. It was derived from coursework that we were teaching on campus and then turned into a platform to kind of do as an outreach initiative. And it's kind of come back full circle. And so the five pillars of performance and health that you're referencing, number one is respiration. The second one is looking at nutrition and hydration. How do these things play a role? Then those things are coupled and you get movement right there in the middle. And then lastly, recovery, which recovery, it's an umbrella term, as is respiration, as is hydration, as is nutrition, as is movement. 
as kinesiologists, we didn't want to say exercise. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to say diet. We didn't want to say sleep. We didn't want to say just water, you know? So we're trying to come back out again on that larger perspective. So the context I always give people during these workshops and during these sessions, these webinars and what have you, is what I say, Natalie, is nine times out of nine, people come to me and they say, oh, I'm interested in human performance optimization. Okay, cool. They find out that I'm a kinesiologist, back to your point earlier. So you work strength conditioning, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah. uh, kind of. Like, I mean, it's part of the work I've done with certain teams and I have that education. What's your question? Well, I want to know frequency, intensity, duration, time. <laughs> where should I go? What gym? What facility? And I just, you know, I just listen, see how the conversation goes. And then eventually it goes into, what about my diet? You know, what should I eat? Macro, micro. Mm -hmm. I just listen. And then it'll go into hydration. Like, okay, should I drink Gatorade or salt supplement or should I have coconut water? Should I avoid alcohol and coffee? What about tea? And I kind of just listened to this whole thing. And over the years, I realized we're doing this thing backwards. We're doing it completely backwards. Because look at it. It's a little illustration I came up with. Three months, three weeks, three days, three minutes, 30 seconds. So it's not that I recommend you try any of this. It's just context. Three months of sedentary behavior. So we're sitting down right now. We're not at stand-up desk. If we did this for three months, we'd survive. You as an athlete, me as a former athlete, like, we know it's not going to feel great. On the SI joint, the hips, the knees, the back, etc. The hip flexors would be permanently lost. They're already stuck. Yeah, you're yeah. already feeling that. So we're moving around a bunch. So we know that it's not good for us, but we would survive. It's not going to kill us if we're just being sedentary. Three months. Three weeks without any nutrition, without any food. Full starvation. Again, listeners, you don't need to be trying this at home. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> it's just perspective. We would still be okay. We'd come out of that and we'd probably need some medical attention, but but we'd be okay. There's well-documented cases of the humans surviving that long without any food, if not longer. Hydration is the next one. Three days without any water. You're going to be in some trouble, but eventually with you know an IV solution, you, you'll be fine. But in as little as three minutes without your next breath, mm. I mean, come on. You're, you're in serious trouble. And the idea of 30 seconds during the workshops, I always do that demonstration for people. I tell them to exhale everything and not to take another inhale for 30 seconds. We don't even get to 15, Natalie, or maybe 20 seconds where people start to, I start bugging out, laughing. I'm like, if you're laughing, you're breathing. So you've already you know ruined the demonstration. So that's where we start. We flip the script on them and we say, yes, we are kinesiologists. Yes, movement is super important. Yes, what you're putting in your body from a nutritional standpoint, extremely important. It's how you fuel yourself. Yes, hydration levels are are key. But what about your respiration? It's the one thing that we're all doing that keeps us alive. And we don't talk about how to optimize it. So that's the first pillar for a reason. That's our foundation. We know in that 1,440 minute window, we've got about, 23,000 some odd breath cycles, respiration cycles, inhalation, exhalation, one, 23,000 of those. That's 23,000 opportunities to start to optimize ourselves. Step number one. Then we get into hydration. A lot of us are not hydrated. And we talk about the importance of half your body weight in terms of ounces. To answer your question, like what's a good tip? Half your body weight in terms of ounces. I'm 200 pounds. I need 100 ounces of water. That's why you see me sipping on water during our conversation today. Then nutrition. This is where things start to change because most of the conditioning that people, especially in North America, have received is diet, 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 diet. You got to be on a diet. Whatever the diet is, get on the diet. (laughs) Right? It's like, well, if you look at the root word of diet, all it means is foods you habitually consume. That's what diet means. Diet doesn't mean paleo. Diet doesn't mean keto. Diet doesn't mean fill in the blank, whatever the diets are now. Diet is foods you habitually consume. So if we've got students going to fast food restaurants five out of seven days of the week, they're on a fast food diet. 
It's as simple as that. So we change it up and we say, think about a rainbow diet. If your plate is colorful, at least 51% of it is colorful, which means foods are sourced from the ground, which means there's sunlight and water and nutrients involved in the production of that food and not in a chemistry lab, probably a good place to start. Then movement comes into play. 150 minutes a week. Can you break it down into 30 segment, 30 minute segment blocks every day? Can you break that down into three 10 minute blocks of just like you said, walking? If you're able body walking, if you're an individual with disability, there's other ways to go about it. I work with the wheelchair basketball team on campus. So there's definitely ways to go about this. Then lastly, recovery. Yes, sleep is key. The research will suggest over and over and over. It's unequivocal. Seven to nine hours. That's the golden standard. But now what the research is pulling apart is the hours before midnight are most restorative. So mm. getting to bed by nine, 10, you're going to have more restoration before midnight than you will even after midnight. That's because of circadian rhythms. And that's the way we've been set up for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. That's our interconnectedness with the planet, with nature, with the moon and the sun. So those five pillars of performance and health, that's just the foundation. Now you can start to construct the house. You can't build a house unless you have a strong foundation. Hmm. Right. And then you can look at like, I mean, it's so crazy because people often will start off with, I need this recovery massage gun. I need this supplement and these things. And I love how you broke it down to these foundations and never once mentioned any of those things because that is like little, little, little tiny specks of, of grain of effect, but only once you've optimized all of these other things, should you even be looking at it in my opinion. Bingo. It's not just your opinion. That is very close to truth. Back to my point earlier about data suggests, how do you apply it? You clearly have applied it as an athlete, as a human. And you've realized if you're eating shitty, excuse my French, and you add a protein supplement into it, you're supplementing a bad diet. It's that simple. If you're napping six hours out of the day and you're not sleeping nine to 10 hours at night, well, guess what? You're supplementing a poor sleep schedule. And every single pillar, you can pull out different analogies and illustrations for each one of them. Right. Love that. So important. So I'm uh, moving into, I have a few questions. I ask every guest and I think we could, I, we could have gone on a lot more on all these different topics, but, um, to give every, make sure everything's manageable for people to, to digest in, in the 100. episode. Let's, uh, let's move into those questions. My, my first one is, and this is always a fun question is out of all your daily habits that you have, if you could only, or if you want to just talk about only one, like what is that one biggest game changer for you out of them all? That's such a tough question. Like you have to understand if your listeners don't know this by now, I'm pretty obsessed with human performance optimization. <laughs> so it's hard to just yeah one, like yes. it's so difficult. Um, I just, I'd have to go with movement. I think movement as human beings, you know, it's all relative depending on what you're doing or, or what you have the ability to do. But I think personally, it's movement for me. If I, if I didn't have that, I don't know where I would be. Mm, love that. Important. Um, next one is, let's say you're at the end of your life. You're looking back on everything you've done. What is the impact that you wanted to have made looking back in one word? Human. Mm, I like it. Yeah, it makes sense. I feel like human, if someone was like looking up the transcript of this podcast and saw what's the word mentioned most, <laughs> probably human. So hands yeah, up. It's, it's leave this planet better than when I found it. And I don't mean that to sound cliche. I, I really mean that. You know, I think the old notion of you got to be the change you want to see, you know, to quote Gandhi as a powerful person, that's a powerful human. And there's many powerful humans on this planet that have transitioned away but also are still here and it's how do you leave it better than when you found it love it and that's what i mean by be human the last one is what does the term all in mean to you 
I don't want to say be human again. That was the first thing that came <laughs> to my mind. That's why I reached out. I said, all in. I was like, damn, that's, that's kind of an analogy for be human. It's kind of synonymous. <laughs> all in. Yeah. I mean, if you're cool with it, I'm just going to say be human. Yeah. Because like, literally it's the same exact in your own way. I was just explaining this the other day to a buddy. I said, I think Natalie's podcast is similar to Preform, but she's using different nomenclature, different vernacular, different vocabulary, but it's still tracking in the same direction. We're just, you know, parallel universe here. Be human, prepare to perform. How do you build yourself up? What's per four humans? All in. It's, I mean, come on, cross-pollination. We're all on the same planet. Back to my point about interdependence. Love it. Love it. So where can people find you and work with you? Easiest and best place is my website, fordike.com, F-O-R-D-D-Y-K-E.com. You can sign up for a virtual coffee. I'm all about conversation. This probably goes without saying, being on your show, people can sign up. We can chop it up, kind of take it from there. Perfect. I will make sure to put that in the show notes. Well, I appreciate you so much for what you're, what you're trying to do, the ripple effect you're trying to create in the world and for coming on the podcast and sharing some of that with us. So um, first and foremost, appreciate you coming on. And uh, I I hope that people dig into this material and they learn more about mindfulness. Maybe just take a pause, take a break. I think if people can get through, you know, like an hour long podcast, they have the ability to, you know, pause and, and take a break and take a breath. So if you're listening to this right now, maybe, you know, when this episode is over, take those two minutes. If you're in your car and and just breathe or park the car, breathe, do something. And a great way, Natalie, to get that extra two minutes, listen to the episode on 1.5. Yeah. Increase yeah, I the speed, yeah. digest it quicker, more room to just be. Perfect. I appreciate you having me on. Hey, I think that the greatest gift in life is presence. So thank you so much for gracing me with your presence of tuning in to this episode. Now, something that I would appreciate a ton and would help this podcast keep growing is if you, one, take a screenshot of this episode and share it on your social media so more people can find the podcast and hopefully we can help impact more people. As well as number two is if you can leave a rating and a written review. That means so much. And once again, thank you for being here.